The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So I know it's been a while since you've heard from me, and I just want to say thank you so much for your patience between episodes. But the wait is finally over. I'm officially back for another season, focusing on more cold cases here in Washington State. And as you can see in your feed, the show has a brand new look, and you're about to hear a slightly new sound as well. I really hope you like it. Just as a quick reminder, Washed Away is a true crime podcast. That means you'll likely hear details about murder, suicide, domestic violence, sexual assault, and many other themes associated with true crime. Listener discretion is advised. On a January night in 1986, a young mother and her daughter were both strangled to death in their Bremerton home just before they were set to move out of state. Over the years, several persons of interest would be looked at for taking their lives, and their case would be re-examined each decade that it remained cold. But despite a very promising DNA profile for the suspect, no arrests have ever been made. Welcome to Washed Away, a podcast that breathes new life into Washington State's coldest cases. I'm Ashley Smith, and on this episode, I'm covering the unsolved murders of Nikki Anderson and Adrian Hale. You know, there's people out there that'll kind of victim shame or victim blame that they put themselves into a dangerous situation or did things that got them in trouble. I don't think that anybody would claim that that's the fact with a four-year-old that, you know, got up in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, there was some evil inside their house that ended their life. And I just, uh, for me, that that seems like the boogeyman that we all grew up kind of being scared of is somebody inside of your house that's not only going to hurt your mom or your dad, but it's also going to end your life. And, and I just, I think it's terrible that this person has gotten away with it for this long. That's Detective Martin Garland from the Bremerton Police Department. He's worked there as an investigator for over 18 years now. And this case is one that he talks about whenever he gets a chance. He grew up in Bremerton, so the murders we're about to discuss have a hometown connection for him. He remembers hearing about them long before he joined the police department. If you're not familiar with the area, Bremerton is a small city in Washington state known for its naval base and shipyard. It sits on the Kitsap Peninsula, about an hour long ferry away from downtown Seattle. And it's where 27 year old Helene Joyce Anderson lived with her two children. She went by the nickname Nikki instead of Helene, and I'll be using that name for her going forward. In January of 1986, Nikki's fiance had been stationed 1,200 miles south at a naval base in San Diego, and their young family was getting ready for a big move to California. 
Unfortunately, as I assume you've gathered by now, that move would never happen, as Nikki and her daughter's lives would be cut tragically short just before they were supposed to leave. But let's back up for a second. Nikki was born on October 15th, 1958. She was a beautiful woman with brown eyes and dark hair that usually stopped just above her shoulders. In two out of the three photos that I could find of Nikki, she's wearing red. Makes me wonder if maybe that was her favorite color. And in all three photos, she's smiling. Nikki lived in Indiana for most of her life, but moved to Bremerton with her boyfriend, Kenny Hale, in the early 80s for his job in the Navy. Together, they eventually had a daughter, Adrian Hale. She was born on November 9th, 1981. The couple broke up not long after that, but they remained good friends and were active co-parents to their child. Kenny actually spent a lot of time at Nikki's place, which was a duplex in East Bremerton on Magnolia Drive. Nikki got a job as a cook at Arby's to support herself and her children, and she eventually met someone new, another Navy man, whose name I actually haven't been able to find. But together, they had a child, and they named him Marcus. He was less than a year old at the beginning of 1986, when Nikki and her now four-year-old daughter, Adrian, were planning their move to San Diego. That's where Nikki's fiance had been transferred. And the decision to move that far away must have been really tough for Adrian's father, Kenny. He, as it turns out, was over there on uh, Wednesday and uh, was one of, if not the last person to see Adrian and Nikki before uh, they were killed. His story is that he leaves about uh, 8.30, 9 o'clock that night. Everything's fine. He remembers waving goodbye to his little girl who was kind of looking out at him from the front window of the uh, duplex there. And um, he has plans to come back the next day and again visit with them, which he kind of did on a regular basis. Uh, he returns just a little short of 24 hours later the following night and um, nobody answers the door when he knocks. He sees there are several notes tacked to the front door. Uh, again, this is 1986, so almost nobody has a cell phone. And uh, Nikki herself didn't, uh, she had had her phone shut off because she hadn't been able to pay the phone bill. So essentially, if you wanted to leave her a message, you literally had to leave a message on her door, um, which is what people had done throughout the day as they visited her and she hadn't answered the door. And Kenny sees these notes, and one of them is from a furniture company that's coming to pick up some of the furniture that she's going to return in anticipation of moving. And uh, he reads it, and it, you know, it's saying, contact us, or, you know, there'll be legal consequences. And so he turns it over and writes on the back, hey, you better call these guys. Um, I stopped by about this time, sticks it to the front door, and he says he turns to walk away, and as he does, he hears something that alerts him that there might be something wrong. What Kenny actually heard was Marcus, Nikki's eight-month-old baby, probably whining or stirring in the apartment. And thinking that they must be home then, Kenny decided to try the door handle and realized it was unlocked. In fact, the door had likely been unlocked the whole time, as people had come and gone and left notes on Nikki's door trying to reach her throughout the day. Kenny opened the door and saw something laying on the floor just inside the apartment. As his eyes adjusted to the dark room and he reached down to touch the object on the floor in front of him, he made a truly horrifying discovery. 
and so he opens the door to the house slowly and he sees what he thinks is somebody sleeping on the floor just in front of the door and it's it's his daughter and uh, he reaches in and he immediately recognizes that she's not alive anymore that uh, the body temperature of her body is such that he understands immediately just from touching her that that something's terribly wrong at this point he registers that the house is dark and he doesn't know if there's a bad guy looming within but he does see baby Marcus is in the uh, crib right there next to the door and so he grabs the baby out of the crib and runs next door to have them call 911. Police arrived after 9 p.m. that night to find Nikki and Adrian's bodies in the front room of the apartment. They had both been strangled, though Nikki also suffered from blunt force trauma and possibly sexual assault, though that detail hasn't been confirmed, or at least it hasn't been released to the media. But Detective Garland told me that evidence at the scene indicated that there may have been a sexual component to her murder. That's all he could say. Luckily, Marcus was alive, but had been in the same room with the bodies of his mother and sister for close to 24 hours. And for some reason, a cushion from the living room couch had been placed in his playpen. Uh, Marcus is unharmed. It's found that he has some blood evidence on him um, also, um, but that the blood belongs to his mother. And it's likely that the killer moved Marcus from the couch area where he'd been laying or sleeping to the pack and play after the murders were accomplished because they had blood on their hands at the time they did it. The blood at the scene uh, was from Nikki and there was a struggle at the scene and as a result, she received uh, an injury. And that injury resulted in her bleeding a lot at the scene, but it wasn't life-threatening. It was just a lot of blood, you know, um, as anybody that's cut their hand or or, uh, or their arm or anything like that, um, while you're trying to bandage that thing up, if you could imagine also being in a fight at the same time and your heart rates up, you're, you're pumping out a lot of blood, even though it may not be a life-ending uh, injury, it, it tends to bleed a lot. And, and so it, there was a lot of blood in the scene that um, we were able to track back to Nikki uh, and, and as a result of this injury that she received during the struggle with her attacker. It's really not surprising to me to learn that there was a struggle as we're talking about a mother not only trying to protect herself, but her children as well. What is surprising though, is that no one heard the struggle Despite the duplex's thin walls, Nikki's neighbor, Pam, claimed that she never heard anything alarming. The baby cried at times, but that was nothing new. And if she had heard screaming or struggling of some kind, she would have said something. While we probably won't ever know how long the struggle went on for, I'm shocked that Nikki didn't have time to scream. Or if she did, that no one heard her though it's likely that she was trying not to wake Adrian, who was asleep down the hall while this was happening. Detective Garland believes that Adrian woke up after the attack on her mother had already started and came out of her room to see what was going on. She might have even tried to run out the front door once she realized what was happening, or maybe her mom told her to run, but sadly, she didn't make it in time. That would explain why both Nikki and Adrian were found just inside the apartment near the door. And the worst part is that Adrian almost wasn't even home that night. According to an interview with Q13, 
Kenny Hale told reporters that his daughter asked to go home with him the last night that he saw her alive, but he said no, because he didn't like waking her up early in the morning to bring her back. It was a simple parenting decision that anyone would make or has made before, probably a million times. But in this case, it's a decision that haunts Kenny to this day. So why did someone pick that night to kill Nikki and Adrian? As far as motive goes in this case, there were no signs of forced entry to Nikki's home, and nothing was taken, at least as far as anyone could tell. This likely means that robbery wasn't the goal. Nothing that we know of was stolen. So Nikki was a person of pretty simple means, uh, you know, as most uh, people in her situation are that are kind of a single parent trying to take care of two kiddos and, and working uh, kind of a menial job part-time. Uh, you just don't have a lot of things that, um, you know, somebody would want to break in and commit murder to take from you. So we do believe that uh, she knew the person that attacked her at least well enough to open the door to them um, voluntarily. There was no indication that anybody forced entry into the house. Also the case that this is a single mom who was in her night clothes and her kids were already in bed. It seems unlikely that she would open up the door to a stranger. Um, her friends said that she was very careful in that regard. And even if you were a friend of hers, but she wasn't expecting to see you in the evening, lots of times she would just ignore you when you knocked on her door. So she was extremely careful and kept her front door locked all the time. And, and for whatever reason, she made the decision to open up her door to this person on that night. And for that reason, it makes us think that Either it was somebody that she expected to come over for some reason, or it was somebody that she knew well enough to trust and let in at nighttime when you're the most vulnerable and your children are you know, fast asleep in their beds. And, and I think that everybody can agree that, that that's nothing but an opportunity to take more precaution as opposed to less. A Kitsap Sun article that I read for this episode mentioned that Nikki and Adrian's murders were the fourth and fifth homicides in Bremerton within the last year. They were killed at the end of January, just one month into the year. Not sure if that's what the writer of that article meant, or maybe I'm just reading it wrong. But if so, that's pretty staggering for a small Navy town. The investigation begins with, uh, you know, all those people that are closest to Nikki, including Kenny Hale, who uh, is the, the father of Adrian, who now, uh, you know, is the ex-boyfriend of this lady who's now going to be moving to California and taking his daughter with her. And now he'll be obligated to pay child support. And he's the last person to be known to see them alive. And he's the person who discovers the bodies. And so he's looking like a pretty darn good suspect. And, uh, and so the police concentrate pretty hard on him at this point uh, with some pretty thorough questioning. Uh, they also start reaching out to Nikki's friends and neighbors, uh, doing a canvas of the neighborhood for any strange vehicles. Uh, there's several reports of strange vehicles in the neighborhood, uh, which are later debunked. They talked to the lady that lives in the other half of Nikki's duplex. Uh, her name is Pam. And Pam says uh, that she also saw Nikki the night before, but she claims it's at about the same time that Kenny was there, but Kenny says he never saw Pam, and Pam says she never saw Kenny. At the beginning, all signs seemed to point to Kenny as a prime suspect, despite his own daughter being one of the victims. 
But this is usually how it goes in an investigation. The person who's closest to the victims, the person who was last to see the victims, or the person who discovered the victims is looked at first. And in this case, Kenny was all three. But what about Nikki's new fiance? Or all the people that stopped by her apartment that day? I mean, there had to be other suspects. There is a person that's in Nikki's life whose name is Antoine. Uh, Antoine has been there during the day between when Nikki is last seen alive and when Kenny returns and finds the bodies during the day, that day, uh, earlier in the day, he's one of the people that was there looking for Nikki. He and another friend, they actually both contact Pam and the other half to see if she's heard from Nikki and she claims that she hasn't heard from Nikki and they uh, kind of go throughout the neighborhood asking anybody else if they've heard from Nikki and so investigators question uh, Antoine and the person that's with him and he's never eliminated as a suspect but it, there's no evidence that shows that he's the person that did it either. As a side note, uh, Antoine later is found to uh, have been convicted of a sexual uh, crime against a child just a number of months after this event which then makes him rise up again as a strong suspicious person in this in case, but again, there's no evidence that ties him directly to the scene. So Antoine, were you able to compare the DNA that you have to him? We have. We have actually collected Antoine's DNA. Uh, it was collected a number of years ago when the DNA was being processed for this case. And uh, his DNA is not the DNA of uh, the unknown donors in our scene. And same, I assume, goes for Kenny and the fiancé? Correct. The fiancé was immediately eliminated because he was on duty in San Diego at the time of the murders. So uh, we were able to verify that through the Navy, uh, that he was actually on duty, on base, um, observed by other people at the time of the murders. And being in San Diego, it's not like he could sneak out and, and commit the murders and make it back. So he was immediately cleared as a suspect on the night of the uh, that the bodies were discovered, but his DNA has also been compared to the DNA at the scene and uh, was not uh, the donor. Something that really stands out to me in this case is baby Marcus. Why was he left completely unharmed? That might seem like a weird thing to ask, but if you're willing to do something as horrific as strangling a four-year-old, why do you then have mercy for a baby? The only explanation I can think of is pretty simple. Perhaps the killer thought that Adrian was old enough to be able to identify them. Or worse, what if Adrian recognized them and actually knew who they were? Both the mom and the daughter were killed by means of manual strangulation, meaning that it's somebody that actually put their hands around the throat of that individual and held on long enough to literally squeeze the life out of them. And uh, without being too graphic, but to try to get the point across, one of the things about manual strangulation is it's not a decision that's made in a moment. It's something that takes a period of time, you know, whether that's a minute or three minutes, that's a long time for your brain to process what you're doing and make a decision that that's the wrong thing to do. And so, you know, this is a, a not a person who made a mistake and uh, and realized it and and wanted to do right by it, but somebody that not only made a purposeful action 
to kill a mother, but then doubled down on it by killing the daughter so that they couldn't be identified. And uh, it's just, it's one of the most heinous crimes that I've been a part of for that very reason. You know, I mean, we can all kind of think of times where we've heard of a drive-by shooting or we've heard of, you know, somebody who makes a bad decision, goes drunk driving and kills somebody or something like that, that has these unintended consequences or a decision made in the moment of time that has awful consequences. But this is somebody that, that set out to do something and then had to take an extended period of time to accomplish it and never change their mind. That's such a troubling thing to think about, just how long someone took to commit these murders and how many times that they could have stopped if they wanted to. And that person has been able to continue living their life this whole time for over 35 years now, all while knowing that they took that option away from Nikki and Adrian. Reportedly, their case was re-examined in 1993, 2003, and 2009, probably whenever a new detective took over the file or whenever there was a new tip to look into. Obviously, not much progress was made until these new DNA comparisons could be done. But there was one really promising lead, though. About four years ago, we processed the robe that... Nikki was wearing at the time of her death and also the nightshirt that she was wearing and we found a male DNA profile strong male DNA profile around the neck of her robe and around the neck of her nightie and also on the shoulder area of her robe and also on the end table we uh, in the house we found the same male DNA profile the fact that she it was a manual strangulation case and this male profile was strong around the neck area of her night shirt that she was wearing at the time of her death gave us great hope uh, that we had the person tracked down. As we worked our way through the case, uh, we realized that that was Marcus's DNA. It was the baby at the scene whose you know, uh, DNA would be on his mother's neck and on her shoulder and on the table there in the scene. And nobody had thought to collect that because he was just one at the time. So we ended up having to track down Marcus, who now lives uh, back east, and get his DNA. And he was found to be the contributor of that male DNA profile, which was kind of one of those roller coaster moments in this case. Now, since then, we have also developed uh, another, I can tell you at least, one male profile within the scene uh, that we're very interested in and uh, we're interested in soliciting names of people that may have been in Nikki's life that, uh, you know, we haven't collected DNA from. If it seems like the DNA is the most important evidence in these murders, you'd be correct. It's resulted in a profile that could finally close this case after three decades of being cold. That is, if it ever finds its match. Unfortunately, Detective Garland can't just run the profile over and over again and wait for a hit to happen. The profile itself isn't complete enough to do that. It also can't be used to build the suspect's family tree through genetic genealogy. No, this profile has to be compared directly to a sample collected by Garland's team. And I wanted to know more about why that is and how DNA testing works in Washington state? It varies by state, so it's kind of different state to state, but the way that it works is there are certain rules about where the DNA is collected from, the manner that it's collected, 
and also the strength of the profile about whether or not then it can be uploaded and compared against CODIS, which is the national database for DNA. There's also different levels of CODIS. There's a state level CODIS and there's a national level CODIS and not all states upload to the national level and not all DNA profiles can be tested against the national level and not all of them can be tested forever against the national level. So lots of times you'll get a DNA profile that's found in a scene, but it's, uh, so let's say it's found on a door handle of a bedroom. It's not the area that the, the people were killed in. There's no blood involved. It's just a DNA profile from a, a handle in a bedroom. If it's a strong enough profile, lots of times something like that can be run against the national database one time. And if you don't get a match, then it, you can use it to compare to known samples that you collect on a one-to-one -one basis, but it won't be run again against the national database because it doesn't have a close enough connection to the crime. Whereas that DNA profile that I described from you where we collected it from the nightshirt of the victim around the neck area where we know that the killer's hands would have been, that's a close DNA profile to the not only the victim because it was literally on the victim at the time that she was killed, but also the profile was strong and full and it makes sense that that would be someplace that we would find a killer's DNA. Uh, one of the other things that's interesting about DNA profiles that a lot of people don't realize is, again, each state is handles DNA differently. Some states, they don't collect DNA for all crimes. Washington State falls into that category. We only collect for certain crimes. Some states collect for certain crimes but don't enter the DNA into the database, the national database, until either the convict dies or is released from prison. So if you've got a convicted murderer who gets life, you're not going to get their DNA into the database until that person dies or eventually is paroled, you know. So that may be 40 years they've been in prison and you've had their DNA running in CODIS and it never gets a match, even though they've been in prison the whole time because that state doesn't upload until they're released as opposed to when they're arrested. So there's a bunch of interesting or kind of quirky things about the national database that make it so not that it isn't reliable but that you aren't always going to get the matches that you think that you would does that make sense yeah yeah i mean it does and it and it doesn't because there's so many you know weird rules and like loopholes and, and things that you just don't realize you think that you have dna like surely you can just match it to someone but there it sounds like there's a lot of protocol that you have to go through in order to to actually test the dna yeah well i mean it's there there's very strict protocols about you know how it's collected and where it's collected and and the strength of the profile and things like that um, and again those vary all by state in this particular case uh we actually have um several different dna profiles from different items i can tell you that we know that uh one of them is a male DNA, but I won't tell you where we collected it, although it was inside the crime scene. And I can tell you that we have several other profiles that may have been males and may have been females that were collected inside the um, crime scene. Now, I'll give you some examples. You know, they may have been collected from a cigarette butt, or they may have been collected from a kitchen table, or they may have been collected from a ch children's toy, those kind of things. So they aren't necessarily uh, indicative of this is a bad guy, but nevertheless, they're people that we haven't been able to collect their DNA to compare it to at this point, and 
and we're interested in doing that so that we can, if nothing else, uh, identify who it is and eliminate them as a suspect and quite possibly find, you know, maybe somebody who's a strong witness who knew Nikki that we didn't have connected to her life that might be able to point us in the right direction as somebody we should talk to. So while DNA is an incredibly useful tool to solving cold cases like this one, it isn't always available. Or even if it is, it might not be able to get matched to someone due to all kinds of rules, protocol, red tape, whatever you want to call it. The legality around investigations hasn't quite caught up to the science yet, is how it seems to me. And there's ethical concerns around all of it. And something that we should remember is that most of the DNA collected from Nikki's place probably just belonged to her friends or relatives. I mean, think about how many people you know that have been in your house at one time or another. They'd likely all have to be ruled out if you were murdered in your home. And sifting through all of those samples and creating those profiles must be incredibly daunting work. Makes me appreciate all the scientific advances that have been made in this field so much. Even if they aren't always available and even if they aren't always 100% correct. Because at the end of the day, samples are collected by humans, and humans make mistakes. It's still just such an incredible part of solving crime in the 21st century. I find it fascinating. And in this case, Detective Garland told me that he does have a profile for someone that he thinks could be responsible for Nikki and Adrian's murders. He believes that the profile he has belongs to his quote-unquote bad guy. He just doesn't know that guy's name yet. And in order to figure out who that profile belongs to, he could use some help. There's reason to believe that more than one person was involved in this crime. I have my suspicions that there was more than one person that was involved. And I think that there's at least another person out there, and probably several, that have information that could lead us to the people that are responsible for these deaths. Lots of times, all we need is a name and I can work from a name and and I don't even need you know the oh he told me this and he told me that you know lots of times it's just hey I think that the person that you're looking for is Joe Smith that used to live at 123 Mockingbird Lane and his phone number was you know such and so and and sometimes that's just enough that we can move forward from there and we can go collect his DNA and compare it to the DNA that we have from the scene and and be able to say yes or no, it, it is or not, or isn't him. Probably our best chance is people that fit into two categories. People that either were afraid to come forward then and never did, and now are in a different life situation and feel like they can give the information that they couldn't have before. Or a lot of the people that I reach out to, you know, I mean, it's been 35 years now, I'll reach out to them and talk to them about it. And their first comment is, oh, that's not solved. And they don't realize that nobody's been caught. And so there may be somebody that has been told a story or has been given information about who did this. And they thought, oh, well, you know, that was solved years ago. And, or it's, a, you know, just a story or something along those lines that has this information that they don't realize is as, is as valuable as it is. If you are one of those people that can help and you have information about Nikki's killer or just a name to check out, please call Detective Garland at 360-473-5488. And if you aren't sure, because again, this happened over three decades ago, 
Detective Garland offered an example of how he helps to jog a person's memory. He recommended that you think back to a significant date or event, like January 28, 1986. That was the day of the Challenger space shuttle disaster, which of course was very big news. And it might bring to the surface a memory, a time, a place that you haven't thought about in years. I bring this up because Nikki and Adrian were murdered in Bremerton the day after the shuttle disaster, January 29th, 1986. So if you can remember where you were on the 28th, maybe you can think back on what else happened that week. Again, Nikki and Adrian lived in a duplex in East Bremerton off of Magnolia Drive. If you're familiar with that area, maybe you lived there in Bremerton in the 80s and you heard rumors about these murders. You're not sure if what you heard is true or if someone else has already called it in. You just never know. So Detective Martin urges you to get in touch. Here's his number again. It rings to his desk and you can even leave a message if he doesn't answer. 360-473-5488. Well, I am maybe an eternal optimist, but I, I'm confident that the way things are moving in this case and the amount of media that it's getting and the amount of time that I'm able to dedicate to it, um, we've got some exciting things happening and I'm confident that we're gonna have it solved in the next year. So hopefully we'll be able to do a follow-up when that happens and I'll be able to give you the rest of the story. Well, that does sound promising and it gives me hope. This was still a really tough case to cover because there's nothing scarier in my mind than someone you possibly know or even worse, possibly trust, coming into your home at night and taking not only your life, but one of your children's lives as well. My heart really goes out to Kenny Hale, who lost his daughter and his co-parent that night. And I can't help but think of baby Marcus, who had to grow up without his mom and his sister. I hope sometime soon that DNA profile or maybe a new tip generated from this podcast will bring some much-needed closure to Nikki and Adrian's family. It's obviously long overdue, but luckily it seems like their case is closer than ever to being solved. Washed Away is a Cosmic Bigfoot production with music by I Speak Waves and Joe Prestone and artwork by Shane Long. It's hosted by me, Ashley Smith. I'm also the producer, editor, and everything else of this podcast, meaning Washed Away is a one-woman show. You can support my work by leaving a five-star rating or review wherever you listen and by sharing these episodes on social media. Speaking of, follow Washed Away on Twitter and Instagram at WashedAwayPod. To see show notes and sources for each episode, visit WashedAwayPodcast.com. And yes, you can send in case suggestions. Email me, WashedAwayPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, especially through the credits. I'll have another episode ready for you very soon. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.